This podcast is brought to you by Cyber Attacks Can Be Prevented. Checkpoint, you deserve the best security. A momentous week in Israel, the fallout beginning to be felt, and now attention goes to the future. What is coming next? It's Unholy. I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. And I'm Yuni Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. Unholy, two Jews on the news. Uh, we recorded our emergency update 24 hours after the crucial Knesset vote this week. In a regular country, we would surely not have enough news to come back two days later with our regular scheduled uh, podcast. But I guess we shouldn't be surprised. This is in a regular country and we have yet more things to talk about, Jonathan. Yeah, and a regular country and irregular times. I mean, these are extraordinary times, even by Israeli standards. It's quite fitting that um, we speak in the shadow of one of the most solemn days of the Jewish calendar, Tisha B'Av, the ninth of Av, meaning that's just a, a date and a, a month in the calendar, but it commemorates the destruction of not one but two temples in Jewish history in Jerusalem. They are sort of standing in for Jewish tragedy. They're understood to be not just the thing itself, the destruction of the holiest site in Judaism twice over, but also the, the notion of a moment of uh, downfall and uh, destruction. And crucially, not just necessarily destruction by Israel's external enemies, but the notion that the threat and here at this point, you feel the divine scriptwriter is being a little heavy handed, a little on the nose, because the threat comes from within, as the story is told. That is what actually leads to the destruction and desire and calamity. It is baseless hatred, sinat chinam, among Jew fighting Jew. That's what we're talking about in the, in synagogues around the world for Tisha B'Av. And Yoni, it feels, uh, you know, as I said, almost heavy handedly metaphorical for the state of what's being played out where you are this very week. Yes. I mean, you know, I find it interesting today that a lot of members of the coalition, e- even Tisha B'Av, even the story of Tisha B'Av is read a little bit differently by di- the different sides of this story here in Israel today. Because people from the coalition talk exactly about baseless hatred, sinat chinam, and now we have to love each other and sibling love or brotherly love or, you know, let's talk about that. People on the other side, people who felt they had lost this week, the opposition, the protest movement, they talk about Tisha B'Av today being the story of Jewish zealots who led the Jewish people down the road to this destruction. So even that has a little bit of a different uh, tone. But as you said, it does add these these ominous sprinkles of, of history over this week, which has been quite, you know, tumultuous, to, to say the least. It does. It does feel like it's quite um, epic. I noticed that the cartoon that will be appearing in the latest edition of the Jewish Chronicle, the main Jewish paper in this country, quite powerful. No words or, or people in it, actually, just an Israeli flag, except instead of there being a Star of David at the center, there are two blue triangles separated, as if, as if the two constituent triangles that superimposed on each other make up the Star of David are breaking apart, that Israel is polarizing into 
two camps, for and against. We've obviously talked about that polarization since we've been doing this podcast. It's a pattern that's been there from the founding of the state in a way, mm. and even older than the state, you know, these splits within the Jewish people. But this week, it definitely feels there's something very big happened. We should just say, uh, you can hear all the details of exactly what in that update episode, the emergency one that um, Yoni and I did on Tuesday. But in a nutshell, I mean, on Monday, the Knesset, Israel's parliament, passed the first stage of the so-called judicial reform, if you're in the government, the judicial coup, if you're against it. And what the protesters who've been filling the streets for six months say is an end to Israel as a liberal democracy as we have known it. Uh, because liberal democracy doesn't mean just elections, it means there are safeguards and protections. And those were embodied by the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court's power to strike down decisions by the government has been sharply limited by what happened on Monday. So that's the sort of event that has had, you know, the cartoonists and the protesters and everyone else making these big, in a way, almost sort of epic claims about the state of the Jewish people and looking back to Jewish history and to even invoking the memory of the ninth of Av. Since then, since we did that update episode, lots has happened. Yep, it has indeed. So, uh, first of all, the Israeli lawmakers from United Torah Judaism, a day after this legislation passed, and as you said, many in Israel see this as the beginning of the end of Israeli uh, democracy after striking down the reasonableness clause passed in the Knesset, a day after that, uh, lawmakers from United Torah Judaism proposing a basic law to exempt Haredim from military service, I think this wins the prize for worst timing ever. It's a law that deems Torah studies as critical as military service. Why is this important? Because at the end of the day, what the ultra-Orthodox parties in the Knesset want, and the reason they have followed Netanyahu all throughout the desert of these endless election cycles, is they want to be officially exempt from military service. That obviously can't happen when the Supreme Court keeps throwing out these kinds of laws, deeming that they are not adhering to the idea of equality. Uh, obviously, they're not. So the minute that you rule in a basic law in this country, as you know, that's the backbone of a, a future constitution, that Torah studies is the same kind of service like military service. That's how you solve the issue of equality. Obviously, I mean, anyone who knows anything about Israel would realize that this creates and will create a huge uproar if the ultra-Orthodox parties decide to move forward with this. This is exactly the fuel that the protest movement needs to continue to say. And what they're saying now, essentially, right, is that this government is illegitimate and needs to be toppled. And it goes to something very deep. Again, we've talked before about how central the military is in Israel's national life. It's a conscript army, meaning everyone is obliged to do it officially. And if one group is, you know, institutionally sort of permanently exempted, but somehow what they want to do, namely religious study, is deemed to be equivalent to military service, that goes to a kind of very big notion of equality, because it means there's not equality of sort of burden. There's not equal burden sharing between Israel citizens. I mean, it's interesting that people get so outraged by the idea of being enshrined this way, by as mm -hmm. the Orthodox parties are proposing. Because I'm tempted to say, de facto, day to day, that's kind of how it is anyway. You know, they don't serve. So what is, what, you know, in your view, what's the nerve that is being struck here by just making that, you know, official, given that it happens anyway? 
Well, I mean, it's, obviously, it's a great question, but there's always a difference between the fact that a lot of the secular Israelis who do military service somehow in the back of their mind kind of realize that eventually the, the ultra-Orthodox will not enlist, and the only important thing or the main important thing is to get them into the workforce instead of just, in, in the eyes of the secular uh, Israelis, just studying Torah. There's a difference, though. When you have the ultra-Orthodox uh, saying this out loud, saying the same kind of sacrifice made by mothers who sending their kids to be combat soldiers who can lose their lives. It's the same as someone sitting for hours studying Torah. And it's not only the issue of equality, it's also the issue of benefits. Because remember, uh, soldiers who are demobilized in this country have benefits in mortgage, have benefits in studies and things like that. And you think that maybe this law will allow for the ultra-Orthodox to receive these kinds of benefits the minute you say it's equal. And again, there's a very big difference between declaring it and saying it officially the law of the land and, you know, saying this quietly and doing it as, as quietly as possible. I think that's a very big difference. And again, when you have already have these rifts in the Israeli society, everything is like an open wound, then you, you get these responses. Look, there's a big issue here, and we talked about it. Military reservists who say they will not show up more and more in numbers, growing in numbers, because of the judicial uh, legislation that passed. You have ministers in the government who are ultra-Orthodox calling these people refuseniks. Now, that is irony of ironies, because, you you know, obviously, most of the ultra-Orthodox community don't serve at all. So it just serves to exacerbate a situation that is already, you know, an open wound right now in Israeli society. I think the timing thing is fascinating here mm -hmm. because uh, conversations I had with people involved in or supportive of anyway, the protest movement was suggesting, look, this is something they're saying to their own people. This is a marathon, not a sprint. We're in for the long haul. We don't give up now because this is going to, we're going to have to pace ourselves. This could be months or years, etc. Part of this was an assumption that, okay, a big moment had happened on Monday. Now there would be some, a pause. There would be some time. The Israeli parliament would go into recess over the summer. Then we'll come back again in the autumn and, you know, pace yourself. On the other hand, look what's just happened. Rapidly, within hours, the ink not yet dry on the decision of Monday, different groups within the governing coalition see their opening, see their moment and think, mm -hmm. we've got to strike now. Though they're not wasting any time. They're thinking, let's do something that might before have fallen foul of the Supreme Court's declaration of something as extremely unreasonable. Let's get it through. And I got a message that I thought was really interesting from somebody who, follow, you know, an Israeli who um, follows these things really closely, just who had also been, you know, observing what happened in America and said that one of the problems in the Trump period was that the traditional media and sober-minded public, he said, struggled to keep pace with the rapidly unfolding events. Each day ushers in a calamity that surpasses the last. This was a really big issue in the Trump period where the, you know, opposition, Democrats, you know, the, the media, they were still focused on some unbelievably scandalous thing that Trump had done on a Monday. And then on, you know, Monday evening, he didn't wait till Tuesday. He then said something else that topped it and the, their sort of head was spinning. They hadn't really been able to organize around problem A before there was already problem B to deal with. And I wonder if a little bit, I don't know if they've, you know, learnt the technique or if it's just this is what populist movements of the right now do. But you do look at the Israeli, um, current government and the coalition and think that's the playbook. You know, you're the, the you're on the floor from the Monday's vote. We're going to punch you again with something else. 
shock and awe. I think that's our lives now in general around the world. This is the pace of things and we should all get used to it. But yeah, as you say, this has been proposed a day after the legislation passed. Today, there's a legislation proposed by uh, members of the Likud. Again, this coalition not shy about its plans. Everything is very much out in the open and now a proposed bill to divide the role of the Attorney General. We should say something about this. We talked a lot about the Attorney General in Israel. Gali Baharav Miara was really bombarded and under attack by this government. In Israel, the Attorney General is a very powerful role. She has essentially two roles. One is to be an advisor to the government and one is to be the head of the prosecution. Now, as we said, one of the reasons or to many of the anti-Netanyahu camp, it appears, and by the way, some of the Netanyahu ministers have said it clearly, that they want to take out the reasonableness clause, and the first thing they want to do is fire the attorney general. When the reasonableness clause is in play, the Supreme Court can say that in this situation, when the prime minister is on trial, it's extremely unreasonable to fire the attorney general, the head of prosecution. But the minute you don't have that, you can do it. And another, maybe more sophisticated way of doing it is dividing those two roles and saying, let's make the current Attorney General just the advisor and put in a head prosecutor who's much more to our liking and maybe hypothetically someone who would say, well, let's just go over all those Netanyahu files and cases and investigations again and then and thus, you know, somehow hinder the continuation of his trial. That is yet another proposal put on the Knesset floor that he could try to say, no, 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 it's not our official stance. But these are all things, as you say, the Israeli public is continuously uh, bombarded by these proposals. Next week, the Knesset is out. So there won't be these proposals until mid-October. Meanwhile, Benjamin Netanyahu continuing his policy of speaking to the world's media and rather than to the Israeli media and trying to reassure, particularly the United States, look, nothing to see here. Ignore these headlines and these scare talk of end of democracy. I think Israel will be a stronger democracy after some reforms are made, he said to ABC's George Stephanopoulos in an interview on Good Morning America, uh, you know, saying that they're making the same argument that we just had to, you know, it's a, it's a slight tweak. It's a minor correction that the court was an activist court. It was, you know, it was overreaching. We've just cleaned up a little bit of procedural stuff. I don't think that's going to cut much ice. He also did mention that he's got, uh, he says, an invitation from Joe Biden to go to the White House for a meeting as early, perhaps it could be as early as September. But he's still trying to say, look, we wanted a compromise. It was the opposition who didn't want to agree a compromise. I'm the nice guy, very reasonable, fluent English. It's all good. That's the sort of message uh, he's trying to convey. I don't know. You tell me whether you think that will convince anybody, let, before we even get to America, do you think it convinces people at home in Israel at all? I'll just add to that the quote uh, he gave to Stephanopoulos in this interview that you mentioned, we delayed the legislation to reach a compromise. We didn't succeed. Now they see that we can legislate without them. I hope they will want us to legislate together with them. Are you asking me if that will land with any of the opposition, anyone in the protest movement? The short answer I can give to you is... I mean, they'll they'll think it's outrageous um, because it puts it all on them. And this notion that now we've shown them strength, they'll come to the peace table. This is a point that might recur later on in this podcast. We should um, not preempt that. But yeah, it's very um, striking uh, to hear that. And um, I don't think it's going to make things easier. It suggests in a way that may, I don't know, you, uh, you know, does he feel he's got 
a sort of win under his belt and feels stronger now than he did before, that he can say something that is in a way quite provocative to the opposition. Well, I mean, obviously he took a risk here and everything, you know, everything was going against him. There was pressure from the street, there was pressure from the reservists, pressure from the financial sector, and he still went ahead with the legislation. That does seem to show that he feels emboldened by it. And again, neither is Netanyahu or any one of his coalition members saying that they will stop with this. But there are other voices. There are voices of moderation inside the Likud, even some of the settler leaders saying, listen, we did this, we have to stop now. So it's a very big question where Netanyahu is is heading. But I think he, he feels like he had a very successful week. Before we go to our guest, just we should follow up a couple of things that we did mention in our emergency update earlier on in the week. We knew word was coming from Moody's, the credit agency, when, when we uh, taped. That has since come. So you should fill us in on what Moody's said. But also the military and this phenomenon of refusal, volunteer, reservists and others saying that they are going to sort of withdraw their participation. And this being this has been obviously a huge part of this story. So just on that, where, where, where did Moody's land? What's the sort of financial pressure? And, and the military, those who are refusing or refusal adjacent, are they holding firm? Or are they more mobilized by what's happened on Monday? Or are they thinking that this is too long a haul, we better go back to our units? Well, I mean, first of all, we don't yet know what the scale of the military reservists is. And we talked about this a lot. We know that there are a few hundreds of uh, reservists after the legislation writing these letters saying, it's essentially a call to your officer saying, I'm not going to come to uh, reserve duty now. We know there are a few hundreds of those. There were 15,000 all in all from all units of the military uh, threatening to do this before the legislation passed. So this is a huge problem. There are also Ilana Dayan, a friend of this pod and a very prominent Israeli journalist, reported that there are voices inside the Mossad that have been uh, voicing their concern about this legislation. We know there are career officers in the military talking about this as well. You really don't know how much this, this seeps into the rank and file of the military. Like This is a huge issue. And we will talk about this later in the program, the fact that the chief of staff wanted to meet with Netanyahu, and Netanyahu wouldn't meet with him before the legislation passed has a significance uh, meaning uh, to all this, uh, I think. And about uh, the credit uh, rating agency, well, we said that they would come out with a uh, special report on Israel. I remind you that in April, they lowered Israel's credit outlook from positive to stable. Now they just sort of, not just, they warned Israel about negative consequences and significant risk for Israel's economy. And, you know, the interesting thing about it, we also reported that Moody's CEO said that he was lied to by Netanyahu. We will remind our listeners that Netanyahu promised the credit agencies that he would go for a broad consensus in his legislation, a promise he, we will say gently, did not keep. So this will probably continue. What the response from Netanyahu and his finance minister, Betsalah Smotrich, is, yes, there is mayhem in Israel, but the people who who are creating the mayhem are the protesters and the protest movement and not us. All these events are obviously grist to the mill for our conversation with our special guest, who has been following on and reporting these events and developments as they've been happening. Dana Weiss is the chief diplomatic and political analyst at Channel 12. For many years, she was also the channel's chief legal expert, also the anchor of our Saturday night newscast and someone I'm very, very happy to call my friend and my colleague. 
I don't mean to sound too Jewish, Donna, but it did take you a long time to come on the podcast. <laughs> We're very glad you did. I'm Jonathan, glad to be you are here. surrounded by anchors. Just have you'll have to deal with it. Yeah, what is that? A flotilla of anchors. I don't know what the, <laughs> the plural collective noun we is. We come in that. droves. Yeah. We come in droves. Yeah. Just no, without the cocktails. <laughs> without the cocktails on the boat. Yeah. <laughs> Um, we might need those cocktails for our conversation because there's so much to talk about. And we're talking here a mere three days after uh, the legislation uh, passed the striking down of the reasonableness clause. And it really does look like this coalition is not, you know, stopping for breath. And and I want to ask, I think, like a general question that a lot of people would be asking, which is, what happened to Benjamin Netanyahu? Like a lot of analysis says he is weak, he is dragged, he's a prisoner of his right-wing coalition, and he didn't have any choice, and he went to this legislation because Yariv Levine told him, and Ben Gvir said so as well, and he had no choice. You have, a let's say, a different take on that. Yeah, you know, there you have to ask yourself, what happened to Mr. Security and Mr. Defense and Mr., you know, the U.S. and the different league and a person who's been here for more than, you know, for a decade and has a real understanding of how the world goes, how economy goes, and has always been very, very um, uh, cautious when it came to security. And here he is working against all his instincts and all his agenda. And there, no one really understands the question. So there are two possible answers. A is what you mentioned, Yonit, is that it's his sixth term under very, uh, you know, severe and uncomfortable political um, arrangement with him not being able to go with the center or center left. He's here with this right wing coalition for the first time. And he's just, you know, he he's weak. He has to do what uh, Bengville says and what Levine says. That could be one option. But there's another way to look at it. And that is it's all through the perspective of the fact that this is a prime minister for the first time who's serving while he's under trial. He has a criminal case in Jerusalem, which is moving on with severe charges. And if he is charged with them, he will find himself in jail. Now, if you take that perspective, then it gives a clarity to all of these moves. There's an undercurrent which explains why he's going against this agenda, why he's willing to pay the price, although he knows what it means to the state of Israel. Why, for example, he started with this reasonable clause and not with what is so important for Yariv Levine and for his partner who allegedly is controlling him and that is the the way you appoint judges, okay? Why is he going to this reasonable clause and going all the way and making sure that there's no compromise other than the fact that there is something in there for himself? There's something in there that can help him avoid testimony. And one more thing, we have to understand the timetable. In a couple of months, it could be October, it could be November, it could be late until December, not further than that. Benjamin Netanyahu has to take the stand and give testimony, okay? And this, he knows, his lawyers know, is something he cannot allow himself to do. Because once he goes on the stand and he is cross-examined, it's bad for him. So he has two options not to get there. A, a plea bargain. But he's not sure that he can stay prime minister because there will be, he will have to leave the public life. Or B, try and maneuver the system to make sure that this thing goes away. The general attorney quits, they take away her jurisdiction, they find a way to, to, to stop the trial, whatever. I don't want to bore you with the details, but 
this reasonable clause has something for him there. So this could be another way to understand the fact that Netanyahu is working against Netanyahu we knew. That makes great sense to me, the way you've set it out, because here he is suddenly prepared to sacrifice, it seems, the institutions of the state for his personal interest, whatever it takes. And, you know, friend of this podcast, David Remnick in The New Yorker, wrote that this is, has a real echo with what Donald Trump is doing, where he's prepared to bring down everything as long as it keeps him out of jail. That was his reading of it. On that logic then, what moves might Netanyahu make quite soon? to use the opening that Monday's vote has given him? What powers has he got, practically, tangibly, that he now has as a result of the striking down of the reasonableness clause? What moves can he make that will help him in his legal woes and battles? Well, you know, the thing is that it's not certain he has moves, but I think Netanyahu always wants to keep options. That's the way he operates, and he'll keep the option open because something might happen. Okay, so if this clause comes into effect, and we have a hearing of the Supreme Court about this in September, okay, but if it comes into effect, then he can practically take the general attorney's position and cut it into half and take away her um, authority regarding criminal charges of a prime minister and then have it re-examined and you remember that the court said something about the bribery charges so he can take that and they can appoint a new general attorney who will look at the case and say, well, maybe we have to do this or have to stop this. He can find a way to make it stop and make the clock stop ticking back. And that is an option that he's keeping open because it's interesting. All of the compromises that were, were on the table were by law professors who said that they found a compromise would still left an option for um, him to find a way to stop the case. When they introduced, when the opposition and the part of the protests which are working with the oppositions introduced a law that closed that opportunity, all of a sudden the compromise stopped and then they talked about, they found a way not to, to agree and everything stopped and he went ahead with the legislation. So there are signs on the way that this is really what he wants. Of course, someone can, you know, say, well, it's not going to help him because the Supreme Court is talking about it and he won't be able to do anything and it's just, you know, paranoia. But I, as I know Prime Minister Netanyahu, he's always a short maneuver and always a man of keeping options because you never know what will happen the next day and you have to come with as many options as possible. It's really interesting what you're saying about him not wanting to reach that moment of his own trial where he needs to testify. He's defendant number one. It's going to take a few weeks, obviously, for him to go through all the three cases. Why would he be, could, could you talk a little bit more about why he would be so concerned and would try to sort of circumvent that moment that he needs to testify? Exactly, because he'll be cross-examined. And when he's cross-examined, then he knows that, he knows the testimony he gave to the police. And he knows the many versions of the truth that he gave to the police. And he knows that it's it's a risk, a very big risk. And his lawyers, and I think the prosecution, and anyone who knows the material understands that when he takes the stand and when he's cross-examined for two, three, four weeks, it's going to weaken his case. And before, when there were bribery charges were on the table, then there was reason for him to testify because he had to kind of fight that charge. But now that's off the table. We're only left with the thousand and the two thousand, which are really uh, cases which are 
rather strong and and he has a very bad testimony in the police and you understand that's going to come up so he might worsen his situation and i think he doesn't want to do that he's a very smart very extremely smart person beyond just the personal moves he might make and his own personal interest in handling his court case as you've explained it what other moves open or under consideration do you think by coalition allies they will be keen to make now that they are in effect allowed to do the extremely unreasonable i mean in a way that's a way to read what's happened on monday things that would have been struck down as being extremely unreasonable are now available to them what should people be bracing themselves for and and i I just throw out one because it struck me the speed of it that, you know, uh, Itamar Ben-Gavir, the security minister, goes for yet another visit to the Temple Mount, hugely incendiary in, the, in its sensitivity as a location, place holy to Muslims and to Jews, obviously. It just made me think, okay, there's, that's not a coincidence. He's doing that because, and he was talking about, you know, the future. You think, okay, what are do they have up their sleeve that they couldn't do on Sunday that now they can do that the law has changed? Um, I think that the fact that Itamar Bengvir went today to the Mount, uh, the Temple Mount, is not about the reasonability clause itself. Okay, it's about the confidence. And it's about the understanding that they are now the landlords of this government. We all remember Prime Minister Netanyahu interviewing in English, of course, not in Hebrew, um, and telling everyone that he has both hands on the wheel. It's true that he has extremists in his government, but he's the one calling the shots, right? He even said that to to President Biden very uh, specifically. Well, now, Bengvir and Smutrich look at the situation. I want to take you to one picture. You need you mentioned it when we were in the studio together. So when this reasonable clause passes in the Knesset, we see a picture of Prime Minister Netanyahu and Ben Gvir sitting next to him, making sure that Netanyahu is saying, I'm for the for the law now. You have to remember that while he was campaigning for this term, he wouldn't have a picture of them both together. He did everything to avoid a picture of him and Itamar Bengvir. And here in front of everyone, national TV, he understands cameras, right? Netanyahu knows TV more than any other leader. Here he is being photographed with Itamar Bengvir to his right. And I think that is the big change that Itamar Bengvir and Smotrich and the other members of this government feel now. It's okay. First time around in March, we met the limits of power and we had to give in to the protests and to the fact that we made the big mistake and Netanyahu fired Gallant and whatever. And now we showed them. Now we told them where their limit of power is. And we are now the landlords of this government and Netanyahu needs us even more and therefore we're confident. And one more thing that comes to mind is the fact that on that day, Netanyahu sat next to Itamar Bengvir and Yariv Levin and all these people while his defense minister was begging to get something and he wouldn't meet the general chief of staff of the Israeli army, not until he finished to pass the law. Now that is something that Netanyahu would never have done before. And this is a message to Smotrich, to Bengvir, they see the position of the defense minister, they see the position of the chief of staff, and they understand. 
By the way, what are, I mean, it is quite staggering, as you say, that, that he wouldn't meet with Herzia Levin, and who was trying to meet with him, the chief of staff of the IDF, for four days, up to the uh, vote, and then he met him only after. Assuming that what he was trying to say to him or to, to give him a view of the ramifications of this legislation on the military. And you say that Netanyahu of old would never have done that, never, never have shunned the, never. the head of the, of the IDF. How worried? I mean, I know this sounds like a—I don't know if this is a strange question. How worried do Israelis need to be of the fact that that he indeed didn't want to listen to whatever warnings uh, Herzia Levy had for him? I think we should be very worried because uh, you know you could be for Netanyahu and you could be against Netanyahu, and by God, we've gone through so many cycles of elections talking about for or against mm-hmm. Netanyahu. But there was one thing I think the Israeli public knew after his first term in 96, that at the end of the day, and you could hear it from everyone who worked with him, even if, you know, if it were people who were his political rivals, they would say at the end of the day, when they met him in that closed room, where you get those, you have to make those really big decisions of life and death and the security issues of Israel, Netanyahu would do what was right for the country. And I think this is a signal that is very troubling because his defense minister, his chief of staff, you know, at that day in the Knesset, the generals were running around trying to meet uh, cabinet ministers who didn't even give them five minutes. This is something he never played with before. And this is on the table now. And it's very troubling. One thing I don't really understand is the, the change <laughs> Only one thing? <laughs> <laughs> Only one thing. One of the many things I don't really understand is the change that's come about in the last few months. So, one is that you had a couple of months ago, Yoav Gallant warning the defense minister, warning the prime minister, we can't do this. It threatens the ability of the country to defend itself. And then there he is on Monday, no longer issuing that warning. If it were, well, yes, issuing it privately, but voting for this legislation. No, no hint of a rebellion by him or any of the other two or three people who signaled that they were very nervous about it a couple of months back. But the biggest change or as big a change is um, in the president, Isaac Herzog, who in March was really pretty clearly against this judicial change. He said it was misguided, brutal, undermines our democratic foundations. He was warning of civil war and so on. On Wednesday, he was out there saying, Israel democracy is strong. Don't worry about the, you know, all the talk of coup. I believe in the resilience of Israeli democracy and have undertaken to safeguard it, etc., not really, you know, condemning the change that had happened. You know, you were talking before about more confidence. I mean, I wonder if partly Netanyahu and the others have confidence because some of the sources of challenge that were around before, his own defense minister, the country's president, seem to have, I'm not saying they're folded, but they seem to have changed position. Maybe just pick on the particular example of the president, of Herzog and his role he was there officially supervising over talks for a couple of months. Now, you know, he, he seems to have shifted. I think I think that's a great observation. Now, Herzog is a man who is a very sophisticated politician. You know, otherwise, how could a leader of the left uh, Avodah Party be elected as president with this vast majority wherein the Haredi, the ultra-right, the Likud are all campaigning for him. So he knows his way around Israeli politics. And I have to give to his credit that he really is a man of compromise. This is the way he is. 
And also, you know, people say that maybe he still has a political appetite. I don't know. I don't want to, even if we think that it's all from his good intentions, I think that two things. A, in his heart, I don't think he really believes that this reasonable clause is as bad as people say. So he was looking at the first part of the salami, and I think he said, okay, I'll get the first part done, and then I'll be able to stop the rest of the salami. Okay, that's one option. And the second option is that he understands that he wants to be relevant. And in order to be relevant, he needs Netanyahu on his side. So instead of taking sides, it's better to be the mediator. And as long as you're the mediator, then you can, you don't have to take sides, you're relevant, you can try and change, you can try and get people to talk again. I'm not saying it, you know, what it, from wherever you come, you still have better options as a mediator. But I believe that the president has to really ask himself, why is Netanyahu acting as he is? You know, I interviewed the, the, the former Supreme uh, Judge uh, Aaron Barak this week, and I interviewed him when this all started, and I asked him, is it because of Netanyahu's trial? And he said, no, I don't think so. I wouldn't go there. And this time when I came, he was very clear and said, unfortunately, I understand it's all about that. And that is why I was such a campaigner for a plea bargain with with Netanyahu um, about a year and a half ago. Hmm. Interesting, by the way, Herzog promised that he would tell the Israeli people for who's to blame if his outline fails? He said that in April. It was an Independence Day interview. I wonder if he'll keep his promise and tell the Israeli people who's to blame. It doesn't look like that's that. You know, the he direction. tried to do something very small yesterday, a small step, and say that the government bears more responsibility. But I think he truly believes that he can still get them back in the room. And, you know, it's not harmful when the president of the United States go back to the talks with President Herzog. You know, being a president of Israel is usually something where you can only, you know, shove your nose into a handkerchief so it's better to be relevant was, I think that was Weizmann yeah. said I think was it? yeah yeah Weizmann um, but uh, I think that the, the just continuing on, on Herzog you th- said he's a man of compromise it's true is there I mean I guess this is under the, the headline, how does this all end? Is there a chance for any kind of compromise with people, with hardliners like Yariv Levine, Simcha Rotman, who's the head of the Constitution uh, Committee in the Knesset? These are the people who you can uh, have a, a, some sort of compromise with. with? On the other hand, you see the protest movement that that might not allow the opposition leaders to, to reach any sort of compromise on this. It doesn't look like the, the trajectory is towards compromise at all. It comes back to the first question we started this podcast. Why are we here? Um, so I, you know, when I think about compromise, you have to ask yourself, what is the reason we're here? Is it because A, this is ideology or whatever? Then you can think of a political maneuver that Netanyahu says goodbye to, to, uh, Ben-Gvir and Smotrich. And uh, as part of the compromise, uh, Gantz and Lapid form a, a, you know, an emergency unity government or whatever. Or if it's all about Netanyahu himself, then he will not go ahead for a compromise. Certainly, Yariv Levin will not go ahead for a compromise. And Smotrich and Ben-Gvir need this overhaul to make sure that their ideology is put into place. So, yeah, I don't know. I always, I, I battle myself. I always believe in compromise, but then I say, is there any chance in compromise? I know that for from the opposition point of view, 
they need time to pass. Every day that passes is better for them because then it's closer to elections. And I think at the end of the day, the protest organizers understand one thing. The real purpose of the protest is not about the reasonable clause. It's not about the way you appoint judges. It's to get Israel to the next election as clean as possible, to make sure that we have significant, true, real elections for the next time, and then change is possible. So the real battle is, will they hang in there to make sure that nothing is tampered with the elections? And we will have a true democratic elections, A, and B, the opposition's role is to try and take the 15 mandates in the center, right center, and move them towards Benny Gantz or move them to the center to make sure that if we have elections, then they can have that shift to make a political change. That is the true purpose of some of the leaders of the protest. Okay, so two questions that come out of that. The first is, do you see evidence among those voters, those traditional right-of-center voters, are in reaction to the judicial reform, the judicial coup, are ready to move and cross that line from centre-right to centre-left to go from being voting for Netanyahu to voting again uh, instead for his opponents. And second, the thing that I latched onto in what you said at the beginning there is what interests me hugely. If they are waiting to get to an election, hoping that it's at least on a level playing field, are there dangers to that? Do you see coming from this government attempts to tamper with, change the rules of the game, whether that's in terms of actual, the way votes are counted or media arrangements, etc.? What are the threats to the next Israeli election being a fair election? So those are two big things. I'm sorry to put both in one question, but I'd love to know what you think about both. About a, about uh, moving the 15 mandates from right to center right. I'll give you an example. It's possible. You see that Benny Gantz is a magnet because he's uh, mamlachti and, you know, he's moderate and he's for talks and whatever. But look what happened. When you talk to some of the members of Knesset from the Likud who for the, for the last time were hesitant about voting with, for this reform, they said, well, we cannot not vote now because of the uh, the refuseniks, the reserves who won't show up. So now this is something that glued them back to Netanyahu. Netanyahu knew to take this and talk to them about refuseniks and not about, you know, citizens who have a choice in a, lib in a democracy. They can choose if they want to volunteer or not, right? Remember, this is a government who by law is going to exempt 13% of the population from serving in the army. So it's not the first time they see that ideology is something that you get an exception from the army. So this is, this is the battle. Okay. And Netanyahu knows how to stick them back. That's one question. The second question about what will happen to the elections and will things happen? Just go back to the other elections. They've already started that in the previous elections, trying to move ballots, trying to make it harder for Arabs to vote, trying to make it harder for Olim Vatikim, uh, who are traditionally Lieberman's voters, to get to a ballot and take them out of the elderly houses. It's very easy, without even you know, without even being seen, to to make these changes. Talk about the media. We're under attack now from this minister of communications who is walking against all of his rhetorics about, you know, private sector, no intervention of the government. And here he is really coming out with, with a law, which we never, we never believed he would go that far, trying to make it very hard for us to do our job. And, you know, it's going to pass. So 
this government is already passing laws which are unheard of or unacceptable. And the reserves didn't say anything about it. And it's they're moving in one direction. So I think this is the real challenge here. So let's just say that what Shlomo Kari is essentially putting forward is something that would, we talked about this last episode, but it would curtail the uh, budget of the public broadcaster. It would in all sorts of ways, transfer money to Netanyahu's, the pro-Netanyahu channel, channel uh, 14, and would uh, set up a regulatory body made up of politicians that he chooses, essentially, or a representative that he chooses instead of this sort of public body that uh, sees over the commercial channels in Israel. That's part of the plan. There are other parts of it, but that is essentially, I think so. I think it is. Yeah, and, he can, and, 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 and they can even fine, they can even fine the commercial channels if they're not balanced. And it's, it's a substantial fine. So it's really something about survival. I, I want to ask you a question that I hate when people ask me. So I'm going to roll the ball to you, which is <laughs> which is after, um, you know, the night of that Gallant was fired, then eventually unfired, the end of March, it looked like Netanyahu would back down. He would freeze the legislation. And it also kind of felt like the days of this government are numbered. So now we are four months down the line. The legislation is unfrozen. Gallant is still there. But the stability of this government, which is, you know, has so many unruly parts, it's still quite stable. Is this a government that you, and here's the question I hate answering, is this a government that you think will survive its four years? Well, first of all, you know, you need better than I do, or at least as I do, that, you know, we have to understand that in the region, always expect the unexpected. That's something I've learned over the, you know, the, <laughs> I don't want to say how many long years I've been doing this here in Israel. So you never know, okay? You never know what's going to happen, and you always have to expect the unexpected. But if I look at this government and try to put in use the analysis, the political analysis tools that we have, it seems like this government... Uh, is here to stay for quite a while because all of his components have no reason to leave and have nowhere else to go. And the harsher the um, protest will get, it will be a glue together. And, you know, in a way, I keep seeing the, the comparison to the um, conflict, right? So it's like we're living the Palestinian-Israeli conflict now inside. It's the same terminology. It's the same narratives of both sides. It's the same. We'll show them, right? The, what did Prime Minister Netanyahu say today to the ABC in, in his ABC interview? Now that they understand that we are here to stay and we'll strong, they'll come to the table, which of course you can think about it in other terms. So, so this is an, an end of claims and, you know, we know who they are and negotiations and Jerusalem first or Jerusalem last or whatever. This government, I think, is, is here to stay and will only fall earlier if the Haredis will decide that they're not getting their part and maybe think it's better for them to, to leave and try and find something with Gantz and Lapid. Or Ben Gvir will understand that his underachievements um, has reached a point where he has to leave the government in order to be able to campaign again in the next elections. Something like Lieberman. For many years, Lieberman would leave the government with no reason, but he would leave just a minute before it was clear that he had nothing to deliver. So I think Ben Gvir is someone to follow and the Haredis. Good advice um, for us and our listeners. That's what you Donna want Donna just said we're going to have a lot to talk about in the next four years. <laughs> yeah. That's we will. basically the bottom line. Um, 
Dana Weiss is the chief diplomatic and political analyst at Channel 12. If you are in Israel, obviously you watch your need every night on the nightly news. <laughs> but on the weekend, on Saturday night, do make sure to watch Dana Weiss for her reporting and broadcasting. And thanks so much for coming on Unholy. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Dana. Dana Weiss, um, who is obviously a direct colleague of uh, yours, Yoni, but f- some fascinating observations there. I am um, gripped by this thought that actually the language, the kind of register that for years was deployed about Israel's dialogue, conflict with the Palestinians is now being sort of imported and internalized into the Israeli internal domestic conversation. It goes to that point that this is edging towards a kind of civil conflict. It's so interesting because, um, and Donna mentioned this, but while there were negotiations ongoing in the president's residence, the opposition kept saying, what is important to us is that whatever we decide upon is the end of the story. We can't keep seeing uh, you, the coalition, coming back with more and more legislation over the next couple of months. And the term that was used by them was end of claims. Uh, What we want is end of claims, which is, of course, directly taken from the Israeli-Palestinian peace process, right? It's the same exact uh, term. So I think Donna was making this really great point about how, you know, we've internalized this. I'm not sure that's a very optimistic thing to say about the future of this internal conflict in Israel, but it is definitely using a lot of the same terms. Yeah, that is a a real marker, a sign of where we are. We're going to keep going on about all of this, of course, as in the coming uh, weeks and months, but uh, we should, on a tradition, by handing out some awards. I've got a rather choice nominee for chutzpah, if I can be so bold. And go with... You're not a a pro in the chutzpah department, I'm just saying. It's usually me, so tread carefully. I do normally grab the uh, Mensch Prize for myself, but this week a chutzpah nominee comes from Fox News. It is the host, Greg Gutfeld, who's come under fire for remarking that Jewish people who went through the Nazi concentration camps survived by making themselves, quote, useful. He was on the show, the, I know, he was on the show, the five. They were there discussing new educational standards that have been introduced in Florida, in which, um, the argument is made that slaves in the United States who endured, you know, abduction and brutal violence and work on plantations somehow, quote, developed skills that could be applied for personal benefit. This is the argument that, you know, slaves, and you heard it being made this week, you know, in a way they made um, improvements in sort of education as a result of slavery. They came out of the experience once they were free with skills that they could apply and earn a living extraordinary that that could be said. And in the conversation, Greg Goodfeld chipped in that, you know, what's the problem? The In the Jews who had survived uh, in the Holocaust, who'd survived concentration camps, it was said that, you know, you had to be useful. Utility kept you alive. And he quoted Viktor Frankl, who, um, who author of famously A Man's Search for Meaning. It's just such a world of mess, all of this. But uh the notion of using that word in that way in this context, pretty appalling. So um, chalk that up. Probably not the first time Fox News has featured in our chutzpah uh, awards, um, but I think a strong entry this week. I, I can't Goodfell. bring anything better to the table. So I'm going to take the Mensch Award of the Week. Do. It has, I must say, nothing to do with Israel, judicial overhaul, 
even Jews, I think. Not really. But we have to. We just must uh, give the Mensch Award to Mick Jagger. Celebrating 80 this year. What can I say? Let's all be like him when we're 80. What, what talent and energy and, and longevity and feistiness and style and, you know, and we had, we should tell our listeners that we wanted to set a fierce argument about the Rolling Stones. Yes. Let's say gently, I'm a bigger fan than you are. You but, are. But, um, yes. Yeah, I mean, I just, on the, in the perennial divide, Beatles or Rolling Stones, um, Beatles was my affiliation very early on and stayed that way. And I did then feel as if once you'd committed to one, you sort of had to be with, you know, on stay with that side. And I've always slightly had that, you know, view. Um, there's, you know, a few little British domestic political things as well that add to that. But no, in his birthday week, I am not going to begrudge him the celebration. You, I know, are a major fan. I am. And I just, you know, the, the, first of all, you don't have to choose. You can love them both. Yeah. I'm not going to drag you into That's a mature and grown-up attitude. <laughs> one I hope to reach by the time I'm 80. Uh, that, is, that is right. You have time. You have, you have a lot of time. I'm just, I, I, somehow this connects back to our conversation about Bruce Springsteen a few episodes ago, where you talked about how, you know, he's aging with this classic way about him. And you were in his con- at his concert. I wasn't. So I'm, but you, you, you talked a lot about that. I think there's something similar, obviously very different in style. And, and to some extent, you were trying to make a point that somehow Bruce Springsteen is Jewish. I'm still waiting for that explanation. Um, well, I, I was quoting a friend of the pod, Eric Alterman, who made the argument that Bruce Springsteen was Jewish. Uh, he, you know, you can dig into that. Uh, he dug into the lyrics and so on and made this argument. You can read that piece in the Atlantic where Eric wrote that. No, my view was that there was just something of the melancholy and the sort of uh, wistfulness of aging that Bruce Springsteen had absorbed into his act. And in writing a piece about it, I spoke to somebody who's a big expert on Springsteen who drew the contrast actually with your hero, Mick Jagger, and said, you know, when you watch Bruce Springsteen, it's full of these songs of yearning and reflection and and so on, on aging. When you look at Mick Jagger, your interest is chiefly, his words, zoological. You just can't believe (laughs) that any man is able to perform and move around and look like that at his age. And so your jaw drops at that, whereas your reaction to Springsteen in this late period is a more uh, sort of gentle and elegiac one. That would be the argument I would make. I know that you sort of share those sentiments too, but so I will share with you uh, in admiring Mick Jagger for reaching that milestone. Kol Hagavod, Sir Mick. Um, Meanwhile, if you are enjoying this episode and indeed the midweek update and all you get from uh, listening to Unholy, do please spread the word rating and review on the, you know, wherever you get your podcast really helps. So too, if you're on social media, whatever that big one uh, is called this week, I don't know. You could talk about Unholy there. We're at Unholy Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. And we will say our thank yous to Gaia Glazer, Omer Primat, Rom Attic. And we shall meet next week. We will. We'll see you then. This podcast is brought to you by Cyber Attacks Can Be Prevented. Checkpoint. You deserve the best security.